John chapter 3. Um, let me read this passage, and then I'm going to pray. And let's uh, listen to the Lord speak to us. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you not the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know when we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning as people who are longing for something more in life, longing for this, this new birth of water and spirit. Father, we pray this morning as we come to you, would you teach us now what it means to be born again? What it means to know your love, the love for the world poured out to create new life in us. And we pray, Father, for us even here this morning, right now in this moment, Lord, would your spirit be at work, the wind of your spirit blowing over us, calling into life people who may have never heard of you or met you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. So here we are getting to this story, um, and it obviously starts with this guy, Nicodemus, um, and, and just to try and paint you a bit of a picture of what Nicodemus would have been like, a few things we know about him from the story here, but also from the Gospels. So his name, uh, Greek name, so he was probably very highly educated. Um, it says he was a member of the ruling Jewish council, so he was like a big cheese, he was a guy with status and power and influence, and he was a Pharisee. And um, so, so really, Nicodemus would have in many ways been the guy. You know, this is, I mean, I sometimes find as I walk around, people say, Jamie, what do you, you know, what do you do? Ask him what I do for a job. And sometimes I feel like I have to say, you know, well, don't judge me. But I'm like a pastor at church and, you know, just always feel quite embarrassed about, you know, sometimes because that's the world that we live in, right? There's no kind of sense of, uh, of, of you know, of, of religious leaders being anything important. In fact, if anything, it's a bad thing. But in this time in which Nicodemus finds himself, he would have been like, you know, at the top of society. He would have been the person with all of the money and all of the status. It would have been, oh, here comes Nicodemus. Let's take a selfie with Nicodemus, stick it on Instagram. They didn't have celebrity culture in quite the same way, but as we think about trying to understand it, you know, that's who Nicodemus is. Get him to sign your Bible, get him to sign your, 
I don't know, first century scroll or whatever. You know, he's, he is the guy to know. And, and he's worked incredibly hard to get to this point. He's worked incredibly hard at being educated and learning and learning the way of being a, a Jewish teacher and a rabbi and working his way up and working his way up. And he has been probably, it's taken him years to get to this point of study and education and strict ways of living, partly because he was also a Pharisee. And the thing about the Pharisees was that they took the law of the Bible incredibly seriously. So seriously, in fact, that they kind of, in a sense, missed the point. So just to illustrate that, you know, think about, you know, one of the commandments which God gives us in the Ten Commandments is, you know, to obey the Sabbath. And the Sabbath being this idea, not that you don't go to the shops on a Sunday, but that, you know, you work into your life this kind of pattern of, of rest, of coming before the Lord, and it was amazing. So they'd celebrate it Friday night, would be Shabbat, Sabbath, and it'd be a time of, of a meal, and it'd be celebration, and in, you know, the whole idea was you would enjoy God, and enjoy people, and enjoy relationships, and enjoy creation, and enjoy food. Like The whole idea of it is that Sabbath is this wonderful break from the stresses and the pressure of the world to find and discover who it is that we are in God again, and reset ourselves, and reorientate ourselves in the world. You know, it's an, it's an amazing idea, but what the, the Pharisees were like, they kind of like, they took that and they were like, well, we want to really make sure that we don't break the Sabbath. And so we're going to put in some like rules around the rules to make sure that we don't break the Sabbath. So it'd be stuff like, oh, well, on the Sabbath, you can't carry anything because that might count as work. You can't, uh, you can't burn anything because that might count as work. And, and, and even at those two things, I start to find some issues. Because <laughs> if I'm thinking about my perfect Sabbath, it'd be like, come to church, worship with, with you know, God's people, like, praise his name, and they might have to carry some chairs in that, so we can't do that. We'd have to, if the chairs weren't out, we'd all have to sit on the floor. And then, and then afterwards, I'm like, well, what would I do? If I could do anything to celebrate the Sabbath with my family, well, I'd love to go and have a barbecue or something. Oh, you can't have a barbecue because that would be, you'd have to carry it from the shed, and then you'd have to light it, and you can't burn things. So you can't have a barbecue. Uh, in fact, you can't turn the oven on because that's burning electricity, so you'd have to eat a salad. And do you get the picture? They take what's supposed to be this glorious release and celebration, and they basically make it utterly miserable. <laughs> And, <laughs> you know, just sat on the floor eating a salad. Um, <laughs> it doesn't get any worse. <laughs> and, you know, so Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus and he's got to this position of status and power and influence. And he's worked really, really hard to get there. But I don't know. As I read this story, I kind of get the sense as I read it that he's... Because when the Pharisees meet Jesus, some of them, they're like, they absolutely slate him. They try and catch him out. They ask questions. As I read this, I don't get that sense. In fact, many people have picked up on this fact. You know, Jesus, um, when, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, John includes this little detail in his account. He says, by night, he came at night. And that might be partly because he you know, doesn't want to be seen hanging around with Jesus but as many people have pointed out in John's gospel, there's this amazing theme of light and darkness and Jesus being the light coming into the darkness. And is there a sense in which Nicodemus is coming to Jesus in this place of the night, in this place of darkness? Now, it's kind of poetic and we don't know for sure, but as I read it, certainly that's how I begin to understand it, that maybe as Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes to Jesus as someone who has tried and tried and tried and tried and tried for years. And maybe he's miserable. 
And, you know, it's kind of me kind of reading into it a little bit, I'm sure. But as I think about living out that life, I kind of think, well, you know, I think that's how I'd feel maybe if I got to the point where he had got to, you know, not knowing for sure if God loved me, accepted me, thinking I've got to keep all these rules and it's so difficult, pushing over and over again, just trying and trying. And it kind of reminds me of another story, and that's the story of uh, Martin Luther. Um, Some of you might know that name. Martin Luther was a church reformer in the 15th century in Germany. And uh, he was a church reformer. That's basically someone who reformed the church, someone who who took the church at the time and was like, come on, guys, we've got to get back to the scriptures and brought about change and transformation. But Martin Luther, and he is an incredible guy, an amazing story, actually, and Part of our heritage here as a church stands upon the things that Martin Luther did. In some senses, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the actions of Martin Luther. So his story is a significant one. Significant because I think, as I read it, it resonates with me. It resonates with Nicodemus as well, and, and obviously part of our heritage. And for Martin Luther, he grew up in this incredibly difficult time. Um, incredibly difficult because it was 15th century Germany. There was no Wi-Fi or Netflix. Uh, you couldn't get Deliveroo. And also, you know, some other small things like no sanitation or hot water or electricity or hospital care or social services or any of that sort of thing. So incredibly difficult time to live, but also incredibly difficult because of the way in which the church operated in that time. So you've got to imagine... In 15th century Germany, nobody has a Bible, okay? Not even, you know, people that were leading the church. Most of them wouldn't have had an access to a copy of the scriptures in their own language. Can you imagine doing church week by week by week by week, never having an actual copy of the scriptures? That's what it was like. And um, in the midst of that, what happens is that all sorts of other kind of teaching creeps into the church. And the main idea was that you would never know for sure whether you were worthy enough for God, whether you'd been accepted, whether when you, where, where you were going to go when you died. And so people grow up pretty petrified of death. And it was a bit like this. You kind of think, well, if I'm going to be accepted by God, I've got to reach a certain standard. Say that's 100 points, and I've got to get 100 points to get in. And I don't know whether I'm going to ever kind of make my 100 points, except for some people who would manage to live a perfect life, and they would, in effect, um, you know, fulfill their 100 points as they died, and they were called saints. And some of them would even smash straight through 100 points. They might get 130 points. And so for the people that had got, this is a bit of a crazy thing, right? But people that had got extra points, almost like they were, had excess righteousness before God, you could actually go to the church, you could, and the Pope would distribute this, or the priest would distribute this righteousness, and, and eventually over time it got to the point where you could basically buy this righteousness from them. Um, and kind of, if you couldn't afford that, so say you got 80 points, you couldn't afford to buy the righteousness, then what would happen is, you know, don't worry, you'd you'd basically go to this place called purgatory, where you'd be purged from your sins for thousands, millions of years, and then once you've been purged from your sins by being tormented, then it's fine, because then you could go to heaven. But if you wanted to get a bit of time off, you could go and, you know, pay to touch a bit of like the the jawbone of some saint that had died, and maybe some of his excess points would get put onto you, and then you'd kind of get time off purgatory. Now, that's a crazy teaching, but that's the way the church was when Luther was alive. So Luther, he, when he's 21, he's walking across a field, and as he's walking across a field, he gets struck by lightning, or he gets a near miss. And as he gets struck by lightning, he's fearing for his life, and he cries out, Saint Anne, save me, I've become a monk. 
sent Anne because he was too scared to talk to God. He was too scared to pray to God. So he cries out to St. Anne, the mother of Mary, and he hopes that Anne will put in a word with Mary, Mary will put in a word with Jesus, and Jesus will put in a word with the Father, and he'll be saved. And he becomes a monk. And then for years and years and years, he tries and tries and tries and tries to, be, to get to his 100 points. And they do crazy things like they wear itchy underwear because this kind of punishment of wearing itchy underwear might somehow purge them of their sins. They freeze themselves to death because that might purge them of their sins. And they, they starve themselves because that might purge themselves of their sins. And that's basically what Martin Luther's like is for, for, for many years. And then this guy, Tetzel, comes along. He's like this horrible salesman who sells these, these, these things that belong to saints so that you can buy, buy some more righteousness. And, and Luther gets so angry about it because he's like, this isn't real repentance. And so that's when he, he nails this 39, 39 um, what is the word for it? Theses, that's the one, to the door of, um, of this exhibition where they've got all these relics out to find righteousness. And it's basically that act that then sets Luther on a trajectory that changes the whole church. He reaches this point of desperation of having tried and tried and tried and tried to fit in, tried and tried and tried to be worthy before God, and none of it just seems to work, and he's left feeling eaten up and full of shame. He said that he would spend hours and hours and hours in confession, so long in confession that he'd miss evening prayer, and then because he'd missed evening prayer, he'd have to go back to confession. I think, what was he even confessing? I don't even know. He was in a monastery of all places, you know utterly miserable. Now, that might um, sound like a million miles away from, from your life. You've probably never been struck by lightning and cried out to St. Anne. <laughs> You've never been a member of the ruling Jewish council. But I want to say, actually, there's a lot in that story that is familiar, isn't there, of this idea that in life, if we want to get anywhere, it is by our own efforts. We have to try and try and try and try to become worthy, to become acceptable, not just to God, but to society, to our friends, to whatever it is that we kind of make the goal and the ambition of our lives. If it's money or status or power, we have to sacrifice family, we have to work hard, we have to grind away and grind away, and we never really know whether we're going to be good enough. And then hopefully, eventually, one day, we'll get to that place. It might be relationships, okay? And you, you think, oh, relationships, that's where I'm going to find my satisfaction. That's where I'm going to be complete. And you try and try. And instead of, like, buying bits of, like, saint's jawbone, you might, you might buy some new clothes, you know? And you buy things, and you buy things, and you try and try and try. And, and you never kind of feel or sense that you ever get to that place, and it makes you miserable, I was um, just read up this quote by a guy called David Foster Wallace. He's an author um, and, uh, and, and an intellectual. And this is what he said. And I think this is brilliant because, obviously, Martin Luther, incredibly religious. Nicodemus, incredibly religious. And we kind of assume that's got nothing to do with most people in, in the world. But this is what um, David Foster Wallace, he says. He says this. Here's something that's weird and true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Allah, Yahweh, the Wiccan Mother Goddess, the Four Noble Truths, or some invaluable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every good story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. So this idea that, you know, actually everywhere in life, we're all a bit like Nicodemus, we're all a bit like Martin Luther, just endlessly trying and trying and trying and toiling our way towards some sort of idea of what the good life looks like and never feeling like we've quite got there. I don't know if you've recognized that in your own life, whether you've ever felt like just tired of trying, tired of trying every day, getting up and just, you know, turning the grindstone and trying to get somewhere and never feeling like you've ever quite reached it, feeling like you're in the night as Nicodemus is in the night. I don't know what happens, what this conversation was like, but kind of the way I imagine it is that um, as, as Jesus sees Nicodemus, maybe he sees some of this in his face, the face of someone who's tired of trying, someone who's been working for years and years and years to try and get somewhere. And he, he, Jesus quite simply says to him, truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's amazing, isn't it? This idea that, you know, Nicodemus, here you are, you've been trying for years, trying to get somewhere, maybe you're feeling utterly miserable. And what you need, what you most need to hear in this moment, what you actually you're striving for, and what you really need to release you from this moment, is this idea that you can be born again. You can be reset. You can walk into a sense of new life, and it is nothing that you earn. Isn't that amazing? You know, you think about when a baby is born, and as the baby comes out, do people high-five the baby? Well done. Great job. You've made it out. Like, no one does that, <laughs> right? It's the, mo- it's the mother that gets the high-fives. Maybe the midwives, maybe the consultant, maybe even the father gets a small high-five. Uh, <laughs> it's the baby. And, but the baby is, although no one congratulates the baby, sometimes the baby comes out kicking and screaming. In fact, that's the normal way. And there's maybe a slight parable in there of our own lives as we experience new life in Christ, come out kicking and screaming. But the baby is like the center of the love and the affection in that moment. It's all about the baby in that moment, right? It's this celebration, new life, and for the first time the baby can see, and for the first time the baby can start to hear and experience and touch and smell, and they experience this, like what they have been made for. They've not been created to live in the womb. They've been created to live life in the real world and eat food and grow up and celebrate and enjoy life. And it happens through nothing that they earn, nothing that they achieve, nothing that they did in and of themselves. They are delivered by the mother, by the midwives, by the consultants, by the medical professionals. And that's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. You know, you want to experience a relationship with the Father You want to experience human flourishing. You want to know what it really is like to spiritually see, to spiritually hear, to spiritually touch, to live life like it is supposed to be lived. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. And it's nothing that you can achieve. It's something that happens to you. And um, um, 
Jesus says to him, you know, it's of uh, spirit. And what, well, actually, before we come to that, um, one thing that does amaze me about this is Nicodemus's first reaction to that. Nicodemus says, you know, um, he says, how can it be a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Which, if you're honest, is a bit of a weird thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> like, like, you know, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. What, like, getting back inside my mother's womb and come like, what? It's just really weird, but isn't that so often our instinctive reaction in all of life? Like this grace, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to just be delivered into newness of life by spirit and water. And Nicodemus' first reaction is, well, what can I do? Have I got to somehow get inside my mother's womb and be born? Like really weird thing to say, but it's almost like he's, he's desperate to return back to that idea of what can I do and what can I bring? And sometimes I, I just think we've got to kind of hit ourselves over the head with that grace stick and remind ourselves, you know, you know, it's not about trying, you know, as we think about newness of life in Jesus Christ, and we'll come to what that really means in a minute, but it, You've got to hear it over and over and over again. It's not about you trying so desperately to become worthy so that you can then be born again, so that you can then enter into a relationship with God. It's not about getting 100 points. There's nothing that you can do. Nothing that you can do. It's a grace that's given to you that you are born again by nothing of your efforts. Josh was talking about that last week, wasn't he? You know, we just bring, there's nothing that we can bring. And I know, you know, you hear it, oh, God's grace, oh, God loves me. And the first thing you think is, oh, well, you know, I better do something then. Well, no, no, you, you, you're missing the point. You don't need to do anything except for come to him. Um, I think, you know, I've heard so many people say, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, I'd love to be a Christian, but before I become a Christian, I need to you know, just sort a few things out in my life. You think that's just the biggest load of rubbish ever, isn't it? You're not supposed to sort some stuff out in your life and then come to Jesus. You, sort, you come to Jesus and he helps you sort your stuff out. That's the way in which it works. And, and Jesus, I think he explains it in, this, in, this, in the next few verses in a few kind of different ways. So one of the ways he says is that you're born of water and spirit. Now, I was joking about not listening to Andrew, but actually Andrew's section on this was really, really good last Sunday night. I think we've got a recording. So do go back and listen to that. But what Andrew was saying was that, you know, sometimes we divide these things and we say, you know, basically you become a Christian and, and you get baptized. It's water. You make this kind of point of decision. You stand up in front of your friends and family to say, uh, you know, I've decided to follow Jesus. And then maybe at some point later down the line, hopefully you get a kind of a second baptism in the Holy Spirit where, you know, the Holy Spirit comes and does something crazy in your life. And maybe you speak in tongues and all the rest of it. And that's, you know, we divide them as these two separate things. But Andrew was saying, actually, in the Greek, these two words, and you have to remind me, Andrew, what's the word? Hemdiades, this is a, a Greek Hemdiades, which is translated in the English as water and spirit, but in the Greek is, is this kind of idea that these two words are jammed together. So it's water spirit, right? You will be born again in water spirit. So the idea being that you make this kind of point of decision, baptism, standing up, saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. And then at the very same time, in the, in the same thing, you also get filled with the power and the life of the Holy Spirit as a gift that is given to you. So it's not as if you make that decision and you earn your way and you go through the process and you do all the right things and then you get this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's you just come to him 
and he gives you life. You just simply come to him and he gives you life. And there is, it's as black and white as that. A little bit later down, Jesus says that um, this is a really weird, another, there's quite a few weird things in this passage. This is another one. Um, uh, a little bit later in verse um, 14, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And this is kind of a hark back to a story in Exodus, where you might remember it from our Exodus series if you've got a great memory. But what happens in the story is the Israelites get bitten by snakes, and they're all going to die, and God saves them by by. It's a bit strange, but he puts a snake on a stick, and he says, if you come and look at the snake on the stick, then you will be saved, and you won't die. And Jesus says, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross, and all you have to do is look at me, and you will have eternal life. And so as Jesus dies there on the cross, like the snake was lifted up, all of our sin and our suffering and our shame is poured on him, and, and, and Jesus is saying, all you have to do is look at me. Just look at me in faith and you will receive this new life, being born again. It's by nothing other than just sheer coming to him and asking. Now, sometimes I think one of the best illustrations I heard for this is it's like going to sleep. You know, you, you, you sort of, when you go to bed, um, you obviously you get into bed, you pull the covers up, you get maybe whatever, I sleep in the fetal position, don't judge me. <laughs> you know, get into whatever position you sleep in, and then you just kind of wait, and then you just relax, and you maybe think about something boring, and you just slowly drift off to sleep, isn't it? It's not like you ever do anything to go to sleep. Sleep just kind of comes, do you know what I mean? You just get into this position where you're ready to receive it, and then it just kind of happens. You can't force it. It just kind of comes when you come into that position ready to receive it. And I think this is what it is like with this new life that Jesus promises, right? It is by nothing of our efforts. We just simply come to him, get ready in this position to receive, and open ourselves up and allow that newness of life to enter into us. By nothing that we can do. Nothing that we can do. And... um, then we get this amazing verse, which I think really is the explanation as to why this is the case. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the reason why it is by nothing of your own efforts is because of the very simple fact that God loves you. He loves you, each and every one of you, to an extent in which you cannot even understand. And it's, you know, it's even offensive to him that you would say, oh, well, I've got to earn my, my, my affection before you. I've got to kind of brush up and make myself look good before you will love me because he already loves you. He already loves you. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, and I was thinking about, um, about Alicia and I. We've been married nearly 10 years now, I think, you know, when I met Alicia and originally fell in love with her, um, it, was, it was because I thought she was attractive and, you know, she was funny and uh, she's a great artist and I love that about her and we got on really, really well, love spending time with each other and there's just the sense of connection, that's right, <laughs> it's very cute, isn't it, but, but you know, that's, that's how I, you know, that's how I fell in love with her, but, but now, I think 10 years later, if you ask me, and I was, this is a bit of a weird thing, uh, but if you ask me, you know, why do I love Alicia, in some, in, in some ways I'm like, 
I don't even know. I don't even know how to answer that question anymore. And it's not that those things have changed. I th still think she's attractive and she's a great artist and we got on really well together. And, you know, all those things are still true, but they're not anymore the reason why I love her. Like, I just, the reason why I love her is just because I know that I know that I know that I do. Do you know what I mean? It's like just become this, you know, immovable force in my life. And, um, you know, you think about when you say those vows, that when you get married, you know, in sickness and health, no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter what changes, that love will always be there as like some kind of like commitment. And so, some of you that are married or parents, and maybe you know that about your, your siblings or, or you know, your, your parents or children or whatever, you would maybe will have experienced that same thing. Like, why do you love them? You're like, I don't even know why I love them. <laughs> it's not to say that there's nothing lovely about them, but it's just to say that, you know, it's something that's just like love becomes like a, like an objective force in your life that carries its own meaning and isn't even rooted in anything in particular. And you think, if, if we can experience that as like pretty rubbish human beings, then what must God feel about you? You know, he, he, I, I kind of think, you know, if you said to God, you know, God, why do you love me? Except for the fact that he's all-knowing. I wonder whether that would be his response. I don't even know. don't even know why I love you. <laughs> But I just do. I just do. And because I love you, I've lifted my son up on the cross. Because I love you, all I want you to do is come to me. And I want you to come to me because I want it to be a genuine relationship. I'm not going to force myself upon you. I want to know you and I want you to make the choice. But it's coming to me in the midst of your sin and your failure and your sense of unworthiness. It's not trying to get 100 points. It's not trying to be the best of the best. It's not trying to keep all the rules. It's just simply coming to me as you are because I love you. Because I love you. Martin Luther said this. He said a little bit, well, basically what happened was after he nailed that 95 thesis to the door, it set him on a trajectory. He got in lots of arguments with lots of people that thought he was wrong. But he kept reading the Bible and eventually, uh, legend has it that as he was on the toilet, having read Galatians, he had this realization that the way in which we are made right by God is through faith, not through works, not by doing anything, but by this simple act of coming to God in faith to be received. He, and he called it justification by faith. That's the kind of theological term. So justification, the process of being made right. And I was, someone told me this week, they said, you know, you can try so hard to justify your past. You know, no, I've tried so hard to justify my past. Maybe you think about, you know, that's just the way, isn't it? You think about all the things you've ever done. You think, well, I can, I can try and justify it myself. Justify what I did and the wrong things I did and the people that I upset and the things I said. But justification by Jesus is when he makes your past and your present and your future right. And the way he does it comes through faith through just simply coming to him and nothing else. And Martin Luther said this, he said, you are not worthy, sorry, you are not loved, you are not loved because you are worthy, you are worthy because you are loved. Isn't that amazing? You're not worthy because you are, sorry, you're not loved because you are worthy, you're worthy because you're loved. There's nothing that you do to become more lovable towards God 
You are worthy before him because he loves you. Because he loves you. And, and the amazing thing that I find about this is that it, this completely changed Martin Luther's life. So after he had this kind of realization, you know that I'm, I, I'm worthy before God because he loves me. And no longer do I have to try and earn these hundred points before God. It changed him. In fact, before that realization, he hated God. Because he thought, God is this miserable tyrant out to make me feel bad and, you know, make me do horrible things in life and wear itchy underwear. And after this, you know, he ditched the itchy underwear. He stopped freezing himself to death. And in fact, if you see paintings of Martin Luther throughout his life, one thing you will notice is that he puts on weight. <laughs> and I love that. Like, you know, he has this realization that, ah, oh, you know, I'm made right before God because he loves me. So I can just enjoy life. I can just enjoy life and celebrate and have barbecues and, and eat cake and just enjoy and just, you know, the pleasure of life. It came back to him and he did all sorts of crazy things. Like he smuggled nuns out of monasteries in beer barrels and to like, you know, um, eventually married one of them. Um, he had a bowling alley in his house and a brewery. Like it's just, it's incredible. Like the joy that just exuberated from his life. And I, and I love this. One of his, not that I would ever give this advice, but one of his, one of his friends wrote to him, because Martin Luther, although he had this realization, like Nicodemus, there's this, always this temptation to come back and do more, right? You think, okay, great, I know God loves me, I'm set free, I don't have to try. But then, you know, you kind of have those niggling doubts. You're like, well, he probably doesn't love me that much, or he doesn't love this part of my life. And so you come back and you try a bit more. And one of Martin Luther's friends wrote to him and said, you know, I'm really struggling with this idea of, of justification by faith. And, and uh, you know, Martin Luther wrote back to him and said, you know, that, and he was so strong, he was like, you know, that is the voice of Satan trying to make you disbelieve in the grace of God. And you need to show Satan that you are not afraid of the power of God's love. And so what his pastoral advice to him was, he said to him, go out and just commit some trivial sin. Go to Sainsbury's and steal a Mars bar. Just, just to prove the point that you are justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that no sin can hold you back. Now, if the whole of Hope Church gets arrested after this, you know, that wouldn't look good. So please don't <laughs> necessarily take that as past. But if you think this is amazing, isn't it? You know, sometimes we make such a big thing out of, oh, I feel so terrible because I've done this, and guilt and the shame and, oh, these wrong things. And even in church, sometimes we get this judgmental atmosphere that sometimes, and sometimes it's real, sometimes we just perceive that it's real, of, oh, you know, you have to be perfect to come in here, and there's this standard we have to get to, and you have to talk a certain way, you have to wear check shirts, and you have to fit in, and you have to, you know, all of that is a complete load of rubbish, isn't it? You know? It's, it's purely by the love of Jesus Christ that you are made right. You are worthy because you are loved. You're not loved because you're worthy. And somehow we've got to kind of get this into our heads and, and, and just let it set us free. Martin Luther, he, he went on to tell this story of, I'll, I'll finish with this. Went on to tell this story of a prostitute and a king. And he said, it was, this is his understanding of the gospel. He said, the king rode out into his land and he sees this woman working as a prostitute. And for no reason whatsoever, he falls in love with her. 
and uh, he falls in love with her. They get married, and obviously, as they get married, she changes her position in society. She goes from being at the very bottom as a prostitute to the very top. She becomes a queen. But as she becomes a queen, do any of her mannerisms change? Does her etiquette change? Does her, does her bad habits change? No, she still is the same person that she was before, but her identity has completely transformed because she's loved by the king. So she has become worthy because she is loved but she's never done anything to improve her worthiness. She's not had to work hard to try and earn the king's affection, to earn his favor. She's just freely brought into a relationship with the king because of love. And then what happens is that, you know, she she lives life in the castle with the queen. You know, is she still going out at night and working the same profession as before? Well, of course not. Of course not. And she loves spending time with the king because they're married. And as she spends time with him and gets to know him, she starts to learn a little bit about what it means to be a queen. And slowly but surely, she starts to walk into the identity that was freely given to her. You think this is how it works, right? You are worthy because you are loved. And then when you know that you know that you know that you're loved, and when you fix your sights on Jesus and you love him and you adore him, You become what you behold. You see Jesus and love him, and you just cannot help but become like him. And, and, you know, so it's our, you know, Hope Church, it is our absolute ambition that you would live the holiest, most righteous, radical lifestyle that you can possibly live. But we don't want you to ever, ever, ever do that because you ever felt any pressure to have to do it. We only want you to do that because you love him. You know, we want to create a culture that just exuberates this love for Jesus. We become what we behold. Let's behold him. Let's worship him. Let's let's just adore him until we get transformed into that likeness, you know. And so it's okay as well, like, to, to come in here and feel imperfect and like you've got something, you know, that you're still working towards and You've just got to know that that's okay he, because he loves you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Should we stand? You know, there is just something here that is simply, you know, sometimes you think, well, what's the application of this? What do you go away and do after? And obviously, there's nothing to do except for to just enjoy it. To go away and enjoy it. Enjoy Jesus. Enjoy life. You think the Pharisees ruined the Sabbath by making it all about rules, and they never stopped to just enjoy it. You know, don't make following Jesus all about rules. Just stop to enjoy him and celebrate him. And yes, we're going to be like a radical movement of holiness, but a radical movement of like just laughter and fun and excitement and passion because we love him.